0: total knees really straightforward probably one of the easiest things that we see frequently we give them to our new grads our younger therapists and or our students but what about that one when they don't progress stay tuned as we talk about total knees Welcome
1: to Therapist in Motion Podcast, brought to you by Spooner.
0: Welcome back to Therapist in Motion Podcast. This is Dan hosting for the final time in 2023. Today, we are going to start a new topic where we discuss clinical cases. I am joined once again by the wonderful, the beautiful, the intelligent, John Klein. Beautiful. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. And then we have a first-time guest who amazed many of us here at Spooner recently during a panel discussion, Ashley
2: Thanks, Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. (laughs) All
0: right. So, John, set the stage for us
1: absolutely i recently evaluated a 70 year old man male two weeks post-op left tka he was lacking eight degrees of extension had 91 degrees of flexion based on those numbers are you worried at all about his prognosis
2: uh no the fact that he's got 90 degrees in two weeks most doctors would say yeah that's a great number um lacking eight yeah you know we need to get the ex- that extension a little bit better you know, for, for gate mechanics and whatnot, but no, ultimately.
0: I would agree. Initially, probably not overly concerned, Uh, definitely not concerned with flexion. As Ashley mentioned, the 90 degrees by two weeks, kind of the gold standard of what we see here in the Valley. The eight slightly is maybe less than I would like, depending on all the other factors, probably not overly concerned with eight. Sure. So some
1: more subjective information for you. High amount of pain. Very, very painful. Said he was frequently doing cortisone injections previously, had never had that left knee drained. It had given him a lot of trouble beforehand. Does that change anything in your mind?
0: You know, probably on the extension, that might be something that I would consider reaching out to Doc and see if Doc had a number prior to surgery on what the extension lag was and potentially you know, what they think the ext- extension goal would be based on pre and what they did intraoperatively.
2: Yeah. I think if you can get the numbers before, you know, what they've seen, that would, would, would make your life a lot easier. Um, but yeah, maybe if there's more excess fluid, you know, pain is always a, a initial factor because you don't want to put the the patient into too much pain, but you also, you know, you got to get over that hump as well
1: so we do a lot of co-treats um, in my clinic ashley's one of my therapists i'm lucky to have her i did see this evaluation and three weeks later i got my hands back on the patient and i kind of up updated some numbers looked at how everything was going and i w- i wasn't worried but maybe just a little bit more concerned with what i thought was a lack of progress his flexion had progressed from 91 to 112 degrees that's at five weeks so not bad but he had only grained Gained three degrees of extension, so he was now lacking five degrees um, at five weeks out. And this is when I kind of really got
0: concerned. Yeah, I would agree at that point. I'm probably a little concerned on both ends. While I'm happy with the progress of 91 to 112, uh, agreed that the only three degree improvement on extension has me going, hmm, you know, what what else is going on? What potentially am I missing in my treatment or in my approach from an exercise standpoint? But also like, you know, a lot of times I tell patients 120 is kind of the goal at six weeks. And so if, if we've got to get eight degrees in one week, that might be a big jump. But again, if they're showing logical progress week by week by week, and I can write about that and update doc and update patient and that we're headed in the right direction, I, I'm I'm usually less concerned about that but the extension definitely would have my attention more significantly now
1: well and what set me off to it was his gait it was it was still not not good right and he was no longer using a cane but i don't think he should have been released from the cane because of how poor his gait looked
2: yeah and he was having a lot of pain with with a lot of stuff so um it's hard to again push somebody that doesn't want to be pushed either i mean not that he was necessarily, but I remember when uh, he would exercise and stuff, he wouldn't necessarily do the whole the whole thing because he'd get tired or it's too painful or whatnot. So I remember that being significant too.
0: Okay. So let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> I'm gonna ask some questions, Julie, really, of the two of you. So between weeks two and five, so the fact that he came in at two weeks, hopefully he had home health and was given some traditional exercises to do, you know, quad sets, long out quads, things like that what are, or what is the rationale for y'all's progression after the initial quad firing, you know, motor control, whatever you want to call it, relearning to assist with, you know, mostly swelling reduction, especially through that super fat pad and, and just overall motor unit firing, you know, you got quad set, long arc quad, which I think we all agree that's a home exercise program almost exclusively once they can prove to us that they can fire it. What What's your progression next on kind of working through that or progressions that you see in the clinic? And we can talk about if, if those progressions we like related to additional quad firing.
2: Yeah. I always like to get my patient's cl- close chain, you know, standing, doing things that kind of simulate walking or just even standing stuff like I, I like you said giving table stuff you know i always do that for a home program because it's easy they're probably going to do it because they can lay down and do it or sit and do it um so yeah i like to get them up and up and going so i think the next step was you know squats and rdls and just hip hinging you know sit to stands that kind of thing For at least you can do mobility stuff and a little bit of strengthening um, but we also have our true stretch cage so we we uh, get in there and do some knee drivers and put them in different foot positions that simulate gait patterns as well so
1: yeah one of the gaps that i see a lot with my therapist is going from isolated non-weight bearing non-functional open chain quad contractions longer quad shorter quads all those things they say okay well I'm going to make this functional I'm going to stand this person up maybe in a split stance rxx or lxx and now the cue is now fire your quad to extend your knee so this pegs the question Dan Ashley what does the quad do in gate does it extend the knee
0: really it does not extend the knee and gait. although when you look at EMG studies it will show a, a level of activation But when we really look at what's happening to create knee extension, it's really the control of the anterior translation of the tibia moving over a fixed foot. So the momentum moving forward over that fixed foot. So if you go back and you look at the anatomy, there's one main muscle enclosed chain that will control excessive anterior translation of the tibia. And in my opinion, a lot of it would be the. Soleus. I would
1: agree. And even in my assessment that day, I said patient requires increased eccentric soleus control. Um, I felt it was lacking in his program. And that was one of the things I thought while on the table, you could push him to getting flats. His gait just was not following. And I think that's the reason why.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about that and some strategies that you both implore to assist with facilitating that kind of end range soleus control but also you both noticed he was lacking terminal knee extension in gait so how do you integrate soleus control with the traditional screw home mechanism
1: yeah so you need mobility and stability correct so his popliteus was gunky it was gnarly, we had to spend a couple of good sessions working that thing out, uh, super painful, super tender, but as Ashley did more work on it and it started to release, we actually both started to notice, okay, now it's releasing, now it's relaxing. So think about the transverse plane control of the popliteus behind that knee, very, very important. Also consider open chain versus closed chain, Tibial transverse plane motion with screw home versus you know standing on a fixed foot and translating over that your relative er versus ir at the knee. You need a lot of transverse plane input into that knee to mobilize tibia and fibula. It was not that mobility was not there either, and I think that's one of the reasons that popliteus never really released and relaxed because it was so stiff through that junction.
0: So you went after transverse plane motion of the tibia, so it going through internal and external rotation in a both open and closed chain position
1: absolutely i threw the book at it i did anterior and posterior translations with internal and external rotation in both open chain and closed chain including fibular mobilizations because the whole the whole system was not moving
2: yeah he started having lateral um, thigh and and even down in the calf pain so we really worked that lateral column of of his leg too
0: so okay let's talk a little bit you 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 both have mentioned a combination of mobility and stability within that first five weeks of programming can you talk a little bit about your evolution of the thought process on why you need and how you incorporate both mobility and stability into your exercise prescription
1: yeah so um As Ashley pointed out to me earlier, she really wanted to focus on strength, right? And get the guy nice and strong because a lot of atrophy and I totally agree. But when I'm doing it, I'm always one who wants to go to end range and re-educate those new ranges of motion. If I'm fighting for an extra degree of knee flexion, you better believe that they're doing a squat with maybe upper extremity assist or a light leg press as deep as they can go so I can re-educate that tissue to start working and those muscles start working that new range of motion.
2: And then I think we also did like we started quadruped stuff. So we did, you know, he's on his knee now and that might feel uncomfortable at first, you know, put a pillow, puts whatever you need down, but then he would work into knee flexion that way and he's controlling it. He's still feeling pain, obviously, but again, he's controlling it and that really turned our page too.
0: just one note on that quadruped exercise. Do have a discussion with the surgeon on that? Uh, Unfortunately, I know of a situation where. That was something the surgeon was against, but it was not well communicated. And it ended up opening the incision because of quadruped positioning. Now, there are some physicians out there, I think they're all different, who will say, yep, no issues with you kneeling. There's other physicians who will say, you're never going to kneel again. I don't want that amount of stress. It's always going to hurt. Puts too much tension on my incision, yada, yada, yada. But just do remember if that's something that you're considering, which I do agree, it's a great exercise to work on that self-control of end range knee flexion from a motion standpoint. And then they can kind of move in the, in the transverse of the sagittal plane to kind of stress that tissue a little bit. Just I do urge a little caution with that, not in this situation that it was a bad thing.
1: Yeah, get it cleared. But once it's cleared, quadruped and kneeling is awesome for mobilizing patella, mobilizing incision, um, doing triplane flexion mobilizations. You can get hip mobility in that situation, those positions. I love it. Whenever a patient says, I will never be able to kneel again, I don't take it as a challenge, but I'm like, all right, all I'm going to take it as a challenge and see, I but I can get you to kneel.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, doing a double leg before, you know, obviously I did it when it was You know eight to ten weeks out so decision fully healed there's no scabbing there's no um but you know those older patients with older skin like they do have a tendency to break i remember one time i had a a guy do it who's i think he was like 80 but he just he went to sit down and he rubbed his knee on the low mat table and literally skin came off and i was like oh no (laughs) so yes you have to be cautious you know definitely older skin
0: okay so let's talk through what the next range of motion checkpoint was and roughly how far out post-surgically this individual was
1: so this most recent reval was 13 weeks out we had got to 117 degrees of knee flexion which is good but if you think about at five weeks he was at Oh, what do we say 112 yes. and now he's only at 117 so we only got five more degrees over that time period and he was now lacking two degrees of extension so we'd only gotten three more degrees of knee extension so again we were doing a lot of coach reading and talking about this case
2: yeah you you can kind of tell we we put more of our eggs in uh, the extension basket on that one to really drive in that total knee and and whatnot and you're saying lacking too right yeah so that's i think that was the progression of that. So that was our focus. Okay. So let's talk about that eight week period of time.
0: And and you both talked about how your focus was mostly on that end range terminal knee extension. So talk me through some of your exercise progression ideas and clinical rationale for why you did what you did.
2: Yeah, I think, um, we we started doing like eccentric soleus work. So nose to wall was a big one in different footing positions. Um, I remember even getting him in stride stance at the mirror and having him go through, you know, knee bent, knee straight and having like looking at it. And I think that was a big thing for us too, is, is um, you know, him visualizing it.
1: Yeah. So you know, when that patient's lacking a couple degrees of knee extension, like, you know, they have it, but they just can't get their body to do it. It's a proprioception, it's a kinesthetic awareness issue. So I've used a visual cue of, it's called a mirror TKE matrix. Patient just sits and looks in the mirror and says, look at that knee. Is it straight? No. Get it there. Push that thing back. And then we incorporate uh, anterior weight shifts. We incorporate steps. We try to make it look as much like gait as possible and follow up with gait just to re-educate the body on, I say, there's a piece of gum under your heel. Don't let that heel come up keep that thing flat and we try to get their gait better that way
0: so let's talk a little bit about that proprioceptive load into soleus because i think it's one of those muscles without some mentorship from jess ellis and andrew walquist i probably would really struggle with ways outside of nose to pull to get the soleus to fire and so some of the things that that shout out to Andrew. One of the things that Andrew really likes to do is almost do like a five-way TKE. So he'll do front leg and gait, traditional TKE, kind of like John was talking about, in a in a weight-bearing position, resistance behind, you know, the posterior knee, right at the joint. Great. Get some to fire some quad, gain some balance, gain some control. Then you drop the lever arm below the knee so that it's more soleus activated then you switch that and go rear foot and gait, do the same two mechanisms, and then as they gain more eccentric control, they turn opposite the resistance so that the, the lever arm is still below the, the knee on the tibia and it's pulling that tibia posteriorly, so eccentrically they have to control the the soleus now to john's point as we were talking about it earlier it's not the most functional thing in the world but what it does do is it helps them learn the motor control of what that should feel like with a little bit of resistance and we know when we add load that does stimulate the proprioceptive system
1: don't breeze by nose to pole so quick though i mean you say like everybody knows what that is i rarely see it on flow sheets until i intervene and say hey how are we going to do eccentric soleus what's it look like in gait even if someone cannot be single leg stance or toe toe tap stance that early you can still do xxx or feet even and start getting some input into that soleus to get it to fire
0: that's true and i think it's important when you do that anterior lean nose to the wall making sure that once they are able to go single leg balance that the contralateral limb does not go posterior because then it becomes more of a Hip hinge than a true soleus, so let that non-involved leg go forward as well, so that they are really utilizing that soleus to assist with the deceleration or the eccentric control of that.
1: Love it, and I even throw in a little transverse plane. Touch left, touch let right with your nose just to get a little more twist in there.
0: Yeah, <laughs> another thing that I really like early on is put them in plank position and put a cuff weight on their calf so that, again, they feel that from a proprioceptive standpoint. Yes. When they go into a plank TKE, are they still getting quad? Yeah. Do I really care at that point? No, because I still want quad strength. I still want quad firing, but it's also going to st- proprioceptively stimulate the soleus to fire because of the uh, of the external load. And it's not much, it's one, two, three pounds. You're also getting their core engaged but what I like about it as well is you're putting them in hip neutral Mm -hmm. to maybe even a little bit of extension, which we know from gait mechanics in order to achieve full knee extension, you need adequate closed chain dorsiflexion and adequate hip extension. So I'm going to ask a question about this case in general. Does this gentleman have adequate closed chain dorsiflexion and adequate I'm gonna say open chain passive hip extension.
1: Nah. No. But we work on it every day. We work on. I it. mean, that's that's like basic, you know. First flow shit I write for a TKA is they're doing hip extension or hip flexor stretch, and they're doing some sort of a calf stretch, because no matter how straight and flat their knee is, if they're lacking dorsiflexion, lacking hip extension, they're not gonna get turned on the extension when they're barking. Yeah,
0: and I think that's an important thing. You're saying that that's a basic thing, in your mind.
1: Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, in my mind, yes.
0: But I think that that's a, that's a clinical nugget for people to think about and stress the importance in their home exercise program of doing that on a regular basis, right? The evidence tells us the average individual takes five 8,000 steps a day. But then in our home exercise prescription, we're having somebody do two sets of 30 seconds on their calf stretch and then, you know, two sets of 10 drivers for their hip extension and they're getting 20 reps in. That isn't sufficient for a home exercise program. Same thing when it comes to quad sets, longer quads, right? Evidence, again, will tell us the quads firing five to eight thousand times, just like the soleus fires five to eight thousand times. But our home exercise program is three sets ten. So it's not sufficient from a load standpoint. And we really need to be better as a profession on prescribing that so that patients are getting that neuromuscular firing early on and they're telling their brain it's okay for this joint that just went through major trauma to work again
1: talk about gaposis talking about getting them back to function like for me it's how quickly can I get them off the table how quickly can I get them eccentrically loading quad eccentrically loading soleus mobilizing stuff that needs to be mobilized attacking hip attacking ankle not that I ignore the knee but you know it's a foot ankle and a hip kind of kind the of. the knee issues.
2: gets stuck in the middle. It's really a hip ankle thing, right? So if you can treat the hip and the ankle, the knee will kind of almost take care of itself. Not that we're ignoring, like John said, but to go to your point, I think the, uh, other thing was, is progressing their home program. I think a lot of times we ignore the, oh, I, it's been five weeks. They're still doing quad sets and, you know, and, and giving them some, like, like you said that they can do all that stuff at home to work on their own extension. So that's another important aspect.
0: Yep. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about at one point during show prep, you guys mentioned how this gentleman started to progress to having more lateral type symptoms, which as I think through some of the patients I have currently that are post-op total knee and that I've seen more recently, that lateral compartment or that lateral joint line pain or not even always joint line sometimes it's superior inferior lateral pain Mm -hmm. talk me through like what your all's rationale was what you went after and why you think that was important to helping him continue with improving in his gait mechanic and and improving that active knee extension.
1: Yeah, uh, at some point, and I've had a handful of total knees who have just that I just cannot sleep that's that lateral knee pain, it either is proximal or distal. I just have a fibula day. I said, all right, we're just gonna attack fibula, we're just gonna beat fibula up, we're gonna do inferior mobs, anterior mobs, posterior mobs, gapping mobs, open chain mobs, closed chain mobs, you're gonna do home exercises specifically to target fibular mobility. And the next time they come in, okay, thanks, that was helpful. But sometimes you just got to take a step back, right? And just get out of your own way and say, okay, what's going on here? It's a lateral issue. Have I touched fibula? No think about all the swelling think about joint effusion think about potential scarring and everything that's going to lock that down has to be addressed
2: yeah and it hasn't moved in however many weeks so yeah i think the fibula gets uh ignored a little bit but also i think we attacked like adductor and and the medial aspect of his of his uh leg too and that really helped him get over some stuff
1: yeah thinking about planes right we think of the knee as a Primarily sagittal plane joint, but the more you target transverse plane, where do we already, already hammer transverse plane? But not forgetting frontal plane, they're gonna get that lateral hip tightness, that TFL tightness, gonna pull on that IT band, that's gonna go right over that fibular head. Frontal plane is extremely important too. Sometimes if you are tired of just jamming someone's knee in the sagittal plane, and you start taking some time in frontal and transverse plane, that's when it really unlocks.
2: Yeah, the tibial like I R E R mobs like sitting and. Even with, if his knee's a little bit bent, I know I'll push on fibula a little bit, um, anterior, posterior, and as well as like a tibial IR Yeah,
0: I think those are great techniques. I also do a little bit of a distraction when they're in short sti- sitting. Mm-hmm. And and if I can get a little bit of distraction, we're lucky to have a a foot ankle post-surgery mm-hmm. device that I can hook around their shoe, mm-hmm. and then I can slip my foot in it to give them a little bit of distraction so that both my hands are free. But then that allows me to go after fibula, tibia with a little bit of distraction. Oftentimes the patient loves that slight distraction because it's something they haven't had before. And it's not. I'm not putting a ton of pounds of pressure into it, but it's enough to create a little bit of of a gap, kind of like what you mentioned, John. But I also think then that allows me to kind of go after the plane of the quad to the anterior aspect of the IT band or... The anterior aspect of the hamstring to the kind of that posterior aspect of the, or or, yeah, posterior aspect of the IT band. And kind of again, as I think about fascial planes and in intermuscular septums, while yes, those tissues are connected, they still have to have individual mobility. And sometimes with those lateral chain type pain patient, you know, presentations going up and working through that a little bit just gives them enough of a relief to where again you spend a full day working on that lateral complex and like oh my gosh i feel 80 percent better
1: yeah um speaking of short sitting because this is what popped into my mind i get eye to eye with that thing and look at that incision right how many knees do you grab maybe from someone else who hasn't done good fascial work superficial work incision work and it's just stuck it's just bound down and you know they come and ask me well how come their knees and bending is so painful it doesn't move like put your hand on there and it's it's like cement you have to work through those different layers over the patella um, to get any sort of motion
0: yeah i just had a patient come in yesterday actually and had seen her physician that morning for her six-week post-op and he did something i haven't had a stop you know total knee surgeon do before he had the patient put her hand on her uninvolved patella and move it around and he said you see how much motion that kneecap has and how you're not getting really any grinding but then also look at the skin and look at how much your skin moves she's like yeah he goes okay now do the same thing on your other side look at what happens. She's like, yeah, it doesn't move. She's like, but my PT works on it every day. And he's like, well, good. I'm glad your therapist is working on that because it's important for him to help it go superior and inferior to assist with your flexion and extension. But you only see your therapist three times a week. I need you doing this every day, working top to bottom on the incision, just moving it any direction. And he said, you know what? I'm not worried at this point that your incision is going to open. So you shouldn't either. And the only way that it's going to get damaged is if it hits the concrete. Otherwise, if you're just moving it with your hand, it's going to be okay. So I'm really curious to see what happens over the next two visits, three visits with her, because I think she really is going to take that to heart and see what happens for her mobility.
1: Oh, it's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. And, and speaking of, you know, doing incision mobs too early, you can push an incision a lot sooner than you can pull it. Right, so if you want to, if you pull on a lateral incision, you might split it. But if you push across an incision, you're much less likely to hiss it or open it up. So I'll do that. Not say earlier than I should, but I do that pretty early to get that moving because I, I love that example. Props out of that surgeon. I wanna I wanna show them that skin should move in all different planes, all different directions, and after their surgery, it does not move.
2: Oh, and not to mention like the desensitization you know does i have a lot of patients that are like man this really hurts and it just hurts to touch i'm like well, just put your hand on it and or put a you know a towel on it or something to help help with that and i think that goes to um again the education and the HEP like that should be part of the HEP is is mobbing your own incision
0: i think those are some great things all right so let's think about not just this case that we've talked about because this was a little bit different of a case, right? Clearly the person came in and, and had an extension deficit because their flexion's coming along. I mean, their flexion at this point is functional. Easily over 110, that's functional. Do docs want them over 120? Yeah, because it that's what the evidence has told them. There's a lower probability of it, of it going backwards, right? But let's talk about some things that you two learned going through this case, because, again, as we talked about in the intro, we see post-op total knee on our on our schedule now I'm like, yep, sweet. Got it. No big deal. Going to be pretty straightforward. I know what to expect. I know how to educate the patient. But yet every so often we get a patient where it's just harder than we think. So let's talk about some things that looking back on, you both can reflect and say, yep I learned this. This is something I'm going to teach my mentor or next time I have a student come in we're going to talk about these things to help them see a few steps ahead down the road
1: for me it was pop Lydias. it was getting that early just getting a little input into it getting get my fingers into that um poplite fossa and it was, it was just so gunky now when i get a, a fresh knee i'll do my retro massage for a while but also sneak back there and just do a little bit of work too very early on to get it going
2: yeah i i um i've had like three total knees this week and i've been attacking fibula earlier and I've been attacking popliteus earlier I get them prone and I do a lot of like just hamstring work and b- back of the knee calf work that kind of stuff for manual things but I'm also I do nose to wall a lot you know earlier now and and getting that like posterior chain to just turn on a little bit proprioceptors that kind of stuff
0: I think for me as we've talked through this it, it goes back to what Ashley mentioned about home exercise progression and am i purposeful with putting things back in their clinic program that are a progression of their home program to see if the patient is still doing their home program when they're three four five weeks out when they're feeling better even if they're not full motion yet but overall they're feeling better they're more active in their home they're leaving their home to you know go to a movie or dinner or you know, start chipping and putting on a putting, you know, at a golf course, but thinking about, okay, at that four to six week mark, when we're close to, you know, five degrees of extension lag, 112 degrees of flexion, am I progressing their in-home program appropriately and then challenge the, challenging them in the clinic with those progressions?
1: This was also another good case that highlights the importance of having a good relationship and good communication with your referring providers and your surgeon. For this patient, we actually went to the surgeon and said, hey, can we dry needle him a little bit earlier than the 12-week indicated mark? Because, again, like everything, posterior hamstrings were so locked up. We worked on it for just like weeks, and they didn't loosen up.
2: manual just wasn't, you know, getting it done, so...
1: Yeah. But as soon as we cleared it with doc cleared with patient, we stuck some needles in there. We
0: saw
2: big gains. Oh yeah. Extension. He, and he had a lot of less pain too. It was, it was, yeah, it was great.
0: So I think that that's an important component to think about as well. You know, John, you and I have had this conversation in some other mentoring about, you know, what does Nina do or using as a diagnostic tool or using as a treatment, you know, if, if it doesn't help unlock that, like it did with this gentleman, why? What else do we need to do? I had that exact conversation with a patient yesterday who's post op knee surgery, but's a collegiate level golfer. And she said, at school, they were needling me. It hurt super bad. Every time I got needled, it hurt worse. It, nothing's letting go. It doesn't let go. I, I almost feel worse after I get needled. And so I went to that conversation that we had had and said, okay, um, and I don't trigger point or needle for uh, our listeners sake here. And I know we have listeners across the, the country where in your state practice act, it is not allowed. So you're going, well, I never use that as a modality anyway, but actually what she had most success with was putting her on the vibe plate mm-hmm. and getting some high frequency, superior inferior input into our system now in in this situation with the total knee i'm not always a big fan of the five plate early on for a lot of different reasons but the fact that you guys were able to get the buy-in from the surgeon and utilize trigger point dry needling says that that was it, it it was potentially more of just a uh like a not something larger than just you know a little bit of guarding yeah did you
1: try the massage gun on him i did not I'm wondering, yeah. speaking on the vibe what that would have
0: done.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point there. Mm-hmm. You
0: know, and I'm always a little cautious with total joints and vibratory things because of not wanting to loosen any input. So I'll think about, you know, whether it's a post-op total hip or post-op total knee. Okay, where their incision is, that's kind of where I visualize the end of their prosthesis. Yeah. So I don't have any issue going proximally and hitting proximal hamstrings or glutes with you know a vibe you know vibration gun early on and then the further they are and the more you know histological healing and bony union there is and three dimensional bony union over 12 to 16 weeks then i have less apprehension but that's just something that i do for my own clinical thought process is kind of and then with the hip i'll go to the distal hamstrings and calf and not necessarily hit the glutes just as much as from that vibratory nature of, of, especially if it's a pressure fit, total joint. Sure. Any last thoughts on, on this or advice that you would want to give our listeners when it comes to tackling a post your next post-op total knee?
1: Most people come out of school feeling pretty good about treating total knees. So my challenge is, are you, Still treating total knees the way you were taught to treat them in school? Or are you actively learning, progressing your your thought process, your clinical knowledge, um, doing all the things we've discussed multiple times, out of plane stuff, top down, bottom up, chain reaction biomechanics, eccentrics, yada yada. <laughs> are you continuing to grow as a therapist?
2: Yeah, and I think the huge nugget, like you were saying, is the HEP, but also like making sure you're checking in on your patient and keeping them accountable. You know, like I always ask my patients, hey, how'd that exercise go? How'd that home program go? Whatever. So they know I'm gonna ask. So they're more, they're more, you know, willing to do it. So
0: well, John and Ashley, thank you very much for joining us on our first clinical case discussion podcast. I look forward to having more of these into 2024. I wish all of our listeners a very happy end to the new year and a great start to 2024. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or case submissions, please do not hesitate to email them to uh, to us at therapistsinmotion@spoonerpt.com.
1: Thanks for having us, Dan.
2: Yeah, thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe
0: on your favorite podcast app.